Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Emma of Girls on the Page, who shares thoughts on poetry and pace. Here's more from Emma. I'm Emma and I run Girls on the Page, a website and Instagram account that celebrates the work of women in literature. I feel like when I have a stack of novels piling up, it's easy to get overwhelmed or to feel like I don't have the time that I wish I had to read everything that I want to read. So when I get to that point, usually I'll gravitate towards poetry instead because I feel like poetry truly does demand a certain slowness. There's a beautiful story in the spring issue of the Swanee Review by Susan Minette called The Experience Manager. And in it, she writes, dreams are voluptuous, then harrowing, like tiny vacations every night. And I feel like this applies to poems as well. Voluptuous, often harrowing, mini vacations from the everyday that force you to take a minute and reflect upon what you've just read. A poem by Anne Michaels did that for me recently, and I was transported to this beautiful, hazy, soft focus, off-kilter world, and it reminded me of the dream fog that you sometimes get when you wake up. When you know you're awake, but you also know that you've just been somewhere else, you've just come back, and you still have a limb, so to speak, in another realm. In the spirit of that feeling, I am going to share these few lines from Women on a Beach by Anne Michaels. The beach glows grainy under the sun's copper pressure, air the color of tangerines. One of you is sleeping, the wind's finger on your cheek like a tendril of hair. Night exhales its long-held breath, stars puncture through. At dusk, you are a small, soft heap, a kind of moss. In the moonlight, a boulder of women. Thank you so much again to Emma for sharing. Again, the poem she mentioned is Women on a Beach by Anne Michaels. And you can follow Emma on social at Girls on the Page. Now here's my conversation with Tembi Dentonhurst. The world can learn a lot from Tembi Dentonhurst, like how to tell a story, and perhaps more importantly, how to tell the truth. She does this and more in her stunning debut novel, Homebodies, which is, quote, a testament to those trying to be heard and loved in a world that refuses to make space. In this electric story, readers follow Mickey Hayward, a writer in New York navigating the crossroads of personal, professional, and romantic tumult. After an unjust, devastating job loss, Mickey takes the reins by crafting a letter detailing the racism and sexism she's faced as a black woman in media. But when the letter goes unanswered, in tandem with rising tensions in her relationship, Mickey finds herself paralyzed with doubt and uncertainty. Seeking reprieve, the mounting pressure culminates in Mickey's return to her hometown. Page after page, Tembi takes us through Mickey's past and present milestones, and as we get to know Mickey's world, readers can't help but wonder, what does it mean to truly feel at home in our lives, and ourselves? For Tembi, writing Mickey's story is a way to help others feel seen, and in this interview, she shared more about her life as a writer, her evolving definition of ambition, and the idea of legacy on and off the page. It's hard to do homebodies justice in this introduction, but trust me when I say that Tembi's passion is present in every sentence. As she writes in the book, sometimes heartbreak makes you bold. So without giving too much more away, here's my conversation with Tembi Dentonhurst, author of Homebodies. Who am I outside of being a writer? I am an aspiring big booty haver. I go to the gym a lot. I am a gym enthusiast. I am a fiance. I'm a cat mom. I'm a best friend. I'm a daughter. I'm a lover. I'm a professional hater. I love (laughs) (laughs) What do you hate right now? I hate everything. Oh my God. I hate everything all the time. I'm just like, ugh, that's like, whatever. I, I think I just love to criticize things. I love to pick things apart. I'm very judgmental in that way. And it's like, just because I think, well, one, I'm a Virgo. So I think that that doesn't help things. But 
it's just an insane attention to the intention of work or a little bit of an obsession with like excellence in a sense whatever that nebulous thing might be and so yes it makes me a professional hater that's a lot to carry day to day (laughs) (laughs) I also I don't like hate celebrities but I'm very anti-celebrity culture in a sense so I don't like most celebrities so who's a celebrity who changes that Oscar Isaac he's so cute I love him Mm -hmm. yeah Um, seems like a good hugger yeah right yeah who else do I love? I think Tracy Ellis Ross is pretty fabulous. A lot of musicians I really enjoy because I just really like music. So I think that I'm not really a celebrity hater in that sense. Maybe it's just actors for me where I'm like, whatever. But It's probably uh, just because we can't seem to escape their lives. Exactly. I think that is what it is. I feel impressed upon. Like when I was young, I hated the Jonas Brothers and not because of anything that they were doing, but just because of how much we were talking about them all the time. I just wanted them to go away. And I just was like, eventually they will go away. And they did for a little while. And then they came back and I was like, oh my God, now you guys want to reinvigorate your career. Here we go again. But thankfully I was no longer 12 and 13. So it wasn't the same level of obsession happening with my peers. What are you paying attention to right now? I love gospel music. I recently went to Solange's El Dorado Ballroom where she put it on like kind of an examination of divine art, I guess, you know, like art that's like worship art and religious art. And she had the Clark sisters there and they're one of my favorite groups of all time. And it was a tribute to Twinkie Clark, who like wrote a lot of their songs and is a producer of the group. And she's just such a musical genius. I admire her work so much. I'm just very, very obsessed with them. So I enjoy listening to gospel. I enjoy working out. That has been my post book thing. Like once I finished writing, I immediately decided I needed a new hobby that wasn't like, (laughs) I needed something to replace that 5 a.m. time slot. So I started going to the gym. What is your gym regimen? It's weights because I would work out with my trainer twice a week. And so I do that. But then I also like walk or I'll like lift heavy weights. I really love to lift heavy weights. I like moving heavy things. It makes me feel very strong. So it's nice. So yeah, I love to read also. I'm a big bookworm. I'm a lover of books, a buyer of books, I feel. is also a separate hobby because <laughs> I am a collector of books, I guess you could say. But yeah, I pay a lot of attention to books. Before I wrote a book, I was just such an avid reader. I love to read. Is there a story that you've read recently that's kind of slowed you down or impacted your relationship with pace? I read this really thin novella called Francisco and it was a, it, I think it was like written and came out in like the 70s or something like that. And then it went out of print and it was brought back. And it's so weird. It has a very surreal vibe and not for like, it's not necessarily like what's happening is surreal, but the writing style is a little off kilter. The main character is a little wacky. And it's about this Black woman who is in California at the time and a slice of her life essentially. And this man that she loves, who's not that great to her, says mean things to her, but she like sticks with him anyway. And she's like self-conscious of the fact that she kind of doesn't like him. But what's so fascinating too, is that at the very end of the book, it's almost like an epilogue situation where she's like talking directly to the reader, like a, a author's note at the end of it where she's talking about how like she's such a different person now and like, she found God and that the guy who was so mean to her like ended up being her husband of most of her life. And they, I guess, like figured it out. He turned his life over to Jesus and they've been very religious ever since. And he passed away and she was just like, he was the best person I ever met. It was just very fascinating. But the book itself, the actual prose was just really, really interesting. It was one of those books where I'm like, I cared more about the writing than I did about the plot, I guess. Yeah, that tends to be what I lean towards as well. Do you feel like certain books come into your life at the right time? Definitely. Definitely. Is there a book that you're hoping comes into your life? I feel like books kind of tell me what I haven't understood, if that makes sense. Like there will be things that I read and it completely shifts my perspective, but never in a way that I expected to. Like I feel like whenever I've sought out a specific answer, I never receive what I'm looking for. It's always when I'm just feeling my way through something or thinking about something and and like something will kind of like unintentionally pop up for me. So I guess I'm looking for stories that surprise me in some way or change the way that I look at craft or the way that a story can be told. And I mean, I think as much as I look at books, I also watch TV a lot for that too, like structure the way that a narrative is crafted. And sometimes I'll be watching something. I'm like, oh my God, that was brilliant. And books will have that effect on me too. Like the way that something is set up, it's like, oh, the way that you carried us through the story and then deposited. It just feels very masterful and very intentional. And so what am I looking for and what am I hoping to get? I don't know what kind of story I'm hoping comes to me. I think at some point I have to reread certain books because there's some books I feel like I read when I was too young. I guess those stories are the stories that I'm hoping will I'll be like ready to read them again soon. 
Have you had to sort of take a step back since writing Homebodies or how has your relationship with reading changed? It's tumultuous in some ways. Sometimes you months I have a really good reading month. I'm like, I read five books this month. Sometimes it's like one or two or whatever. But I think because I was writing so much and I started writing Homebodies in, I want to say March of 2020 and I finished May of 2021. So it was a little while. And it was like definitely at my pace. And then once it was like sold and with my publisher, then it wasn't really at my pace anymore. And I procrastinated on my edits a lot. And so I ended up like rewriting the entire book in like six weeks. So that was insane. And so I needed to really chill after that. Was there a reason that you just couldn't bring yourself to the page? Were you just exhausted or? I think a little exhausted, a little apprehensive. Also just eager to just live my life. I didn't feel like writing, you know, sometimes I need like a healthy amount of pressure to get it done. And it gave me like four months to do my edits and it almost felt like too much time. Mm, Interesting. So you work well under pressure. Yeah. Or like tighter deadlines. Like I need to be able to sink into a project and then also working full time on top of that. It was a lot to balance at once. I mean, I want to talk obviously a lot about homebodies, but I did want to talk about your day job too, what you do for the strategist and, Mm -hmm. you know, your specific areas of interest, which are beauty and books. And if there have been unexpected parallels in writing about the two, you know, how has beauty informed your love of stories or vice versa? Kind of have this thing that I always say, which is if you want to figure out what a culture cares about, look at what they find beautiful. For me, beauty has always been a way to discuss culture and vice versa. And I think that the way that we interact with beauty and the idea of adornment and the idea of adjusting and performing beauty or like the choices that we make around that, there's a lot of things to ponder. And you can spend a lot of time thinking about that. And in relation to books, I mean, they both tell stories in a way. And so that's like kind of the relation for me. Yeah. Is there any unexpected challenges that come with covering those two? With books, no, because I think like a lot of times I'm writing like a reading list or I'm asking other people about their things or I'm talking to writers about the books that they read. So it's much more like interview heavy and like interview based. I'd say when it comes to beauty, a lot of it is more research and digging into, you know, the science behind something, especially if it's like skincare, things like that, or it's culture. And so that's me asserting myself as an expert or just asserting my perspective as a valid one, which existing in some ways in the periphery of the industry for like a long time, or like the women that look like me being in the periphery of the industry intentionally in a lot of ways, because I mean, not the periphery for me personally, but periphery as far as the mainstream goes, asserting myself as an expert in that space has been, I wouldn't want to say it's challenging because it's not. And I think being part of an institution helps with that a lot. You know, that's the platform. So people are going to listen, they're going to pay attention. But I understand that my subjectivity is a little bit different. Like my perspective is also going to be different as well. So I don't know if there's challenges, more so balancing the way that I see things with making that legible for other people, because I know that I have a different perspective from my editor for example. Not my current editor, but editors of the past. Yeah, I think that's really apparent in what you choose to write about and kind of the parallels that we see in Mickey's story. And, you know, on the subject of asserting your point of view, I want to talk about the essay that you just published for The Cut. It's really a striking piece about double standards that Black women experience and navigate in the workplace. And there are so many lines that stood out to me. And there was one in particular where you write, My ambition was cloaked as representation, as doing something for the collective good. And obviously it's taxing to navigate your own ambition while balancing or rejecting collective or outside expectations about what you're supposed to want and who you're supposed to be. And so I'd love to talk about that word a little bit. You know, how would you describe your relationship with ambition and how has it evolved after writing Homebodies? I think that when I got to New York Mag, I was so impressed by everybody and everything. I was like, this is the best place in the world. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. This is my last job in media. I just want to live here forever. I'm obsessed with this place. And I wouldn't so much say that my sentiments have changed as much as they've evolved because I recognized at some point that I didn't want to climb to the top of that ladder. And before getting there, I was very much so in that mindset because prior to that, I was the beauty editor at Nylon and there I was like, okay, beauty editor, then, you know, senior beauty editor and then beauty director. And I was always thinking like, oh my gosh, the amount of beauty directors who have also ended up becoming the editor in chief of X, Y, and Z magazine. And so I very much so had that kind of hope for myself. I thought that, you know, I wanted that power. I wanted the opportunity to tell stories and shape them and decide the direction and 
push culture in the direction that I saw fit. That was a big want of mine. And I felt like I was capable of doing that. And so I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I can do. This is what I should be doing. And then the pandemic happened. And I knew how I wanted to continue to write. Like I knew I wanted to write fiction. That had always been a dream of mine. But that felt kind of like a kind of bigger thing in a way. It just felt overwhelming to me because I was like, how do you even write a book? That's a lot of words. Like, (laughs) you know, I I used to write a lot of fan fiction when I was in high school. So it it. was like- About what? Sorry to detour. Oh, The Click. The Click. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote a lot of Click fan fiction, which was just like my outlet. And I would just write so much. Like I could write 10,000 words in a day, which is crazy. Me now, imagine. No, absolutely not. 10,000 words in a day sounds insane to me, but that would be something I could like easily just sit down and pump out. I would sit down at 10 p.m. and write until three and go to sleep. I'm like 15, 16. Like that's what I would spend my days doing is writing. And so, but then I got to this point where I was like, I could no longer write these long form thoughts anymore. And so I was just kind of going through an identity crisis with my fiction and an identity crisis with my writing. And in all of that time, I started like becoming a professional and like doing this beauty thing and being like, oh, I really like this. But returning to that practice, committing myself to homebodies, doing that really changed my relationship to ambition because it became so much more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like, Not to say that putting yourself out there in your career and doing that isn't vulnerable because in a lot of ways it is, but fiction, novel writing, writing in general is just such a vulnerable practice because at the end of the day, an article goes up, it comes down, an article goes up, people like it, whatever. The conversation changes, it evolves. The attention span for articles is much different than the attention span for a book or also just like the time you dedicate to it. I was like, I want this so much for myself. I want to do this so badly. Like I'd never given so much of myself over to something. And it felt like the right time. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic also was like, I had all this time that I wasn't commuting. Like I could kind of give myself over to something else. I could actually focus and I actually had the brain space to do something other than get up and go to work and (laughs) write a story and come home. So as far as ambition goes, Homebody's changed for me. I think what I wanted, not only out of my industry, but also what I wanted for myself, because I was able to recognize that this is really what I want to be doing. This is really what I care about. And while I still have big ambitions in the fiction space, in the book space, because I am, like, I think I'm just naturally a very ambitious person. Like, I want the biggest, best version of everything. I, like, learned to have this, like, appreciation for the craft that superseded what everybody else could see in some ways. The ambition became on a much more like personal level. It changed from just outside validation or from things that people could see to someone reading my work and feeling seen or someone reading my work and being like, that was a beautiful sentence. Someone reading my work and being like, wow, how the hell did she do that? It's like a different kind of ambition, I would say. I think I just crossed that threshold myself. It's a relieving spot to get to in a lot of ways, kind of reorients your focus on the things that are more important and have longevity because a job title changes, a trend changes, Mm -hmm. but those things become part of somebody's foundation. So I'm glad that, I don't know, you've arrived at that point and that it feels right. Yeah, very different. (laughs) Very different. Well, on the subject of ambition, I want our listeners to meet Nikki. So maybe now we can have you read a section from Homebodies. Sure. So where we are in the book at this point is Mickey and Lex have just fought and she decides that she's going to leave and go home to Maryland. And this is kind of a big decision for her to be making because she hasn't been home in a while. Her relationship to home is complex because she's thrown herself into her work and that's mostly where her identity is centered. And so her deciding to go home and leave the safety and comfort of what she's built is a massive decision. The next part that I'm reading is her contending with that choice. The line went dead and Mickey was filled with a strange sense of dread. Was she really doing this? Was she actually going to leave? In New York, she at least had the hustle and bustle of the city to keep her motivated, not that she had really left her apartment much over the last few weeks. Back home, things moved at a near glacial pace. Even ordering at the local Starbucks took double the time. People just weren't in a hurry, and the mundaneness was mind-numbing. But she bought the train ticket anyway. It was due to leave in a few hours, right before Lex got home. Mickey hadn't been back to Maryland for longer than a few days in more than four years. Her visits clustered around birthdays and holidays. It had always felt like she had something better, more important, more urgent to do. She would be filled with a rush of nostalgia for a few hours after she returned. That would quickly dissipate, the rest of the time filled with Mickey counting down the seconds until she could return to her real life. She rarely stayed longer than 48 hours if she could help it, citing her busy schedule at work. But going back felt like she was working in the opposite direction of her goals. Every missed day was one where she could have been dreaming of her next big idea or studying the city she had adopted as her own. 
Too many of her neighbor's kids had ended up doing versions of their parents' jobs, stable government work in acronym departments, their paychecks improving year after year. When the government couldn't decide on a budget, the entire block felt it. Eight out of 10 houses were furloughed, everyone going to work with no pay on the promise that Miss America would get her shit together. Somehow, she always did. But work wasn't the point. They kept themselves full and whole on the not work things, the vacations, the side hustles, the kids. Her high school friends had provided a different kind of blueprint, one Mickey wasn't equipped to follow. If there was one piece of advice she'd taken from her mother, it was that she was different from these white kids and thus could not mimic their laissez-faire attitude toward life, as if things were guaranteed. Could not fathom things like a gap year. Did not have the luxury of going to a small liberal arts college with limited financial aid. She had to thread a different kind of needle. Worked twice as hard because she was Black, three times because she was a Black woman, four because she was gay, five because if nothing else, Mickey has something to prove. She left for college and was off to the races on a rocket that didn't seem capable of slowing down, but it had making its descent back to Earth soon after Mickey took the job at Wave. It felt like the rocket had broken the atmosphere now, burning and splitting and barely holding form. Maryland? That signified total engine failure. Everything she worked for now flammable material. Things for people to point at as evidence that she had once been good. But she could not stay here. Not when Lex was making her out to be some kind of leech. After all Mickey had done to build a life for them, Lex was ungrateful. That much was clear. Tears stung her eyes as she emptied her underwear drawer. She hadn't prepped anyone for this, had not even gestured at the vague idea of returning, but she was sure they'd be happy to see her. Mickey, the golden child, the celebrity, even if no one in her family understood exactly what she did. They told everyone she was a big writer at a prestigious magazine, which was partly true, staff writer at an edgy, admittedly dying publication, and she didn't have the energy to correct them with specifics. Plus, she was verified on Instagram, which among her cousins made her unimpeachably cool. Ultimately, it didn't matter. She had defined herself by a job that no longer existed. A meow reminded her that Mango needed to eat. She dumped dry food in her bowl and scratched her behind the ears. Taking care of her had mostly been Lex's responsibility anyway. Mickey was certain she could continue to manage on her own. She checked her phone. She had to leave in the next half hour to make her train. She did a last-minute walkthrough, trying to figure out if she was missing anything. She didn't hear the keys in the door. Babe, Lex called out. Mickey's stomach dropped at the sound. She emerged from the room and met Lex at the door. She had flowers in hand, a double bouquet of white roses that held its shape thanks to a cellophane cone. What's all this? Lex asked. Where are you going? Home, Mickey said. She was sure she looked disheveled, her face puffy from crying, her hair thrown up in a loose bun atop her head, the ends of her braids shooting out at all odd angles like little black sticks. You are home. Lex looked sad now, now that she realized what Mickey was about to do, that she was serious. So what I really love is how Mickey's story really is the details. It's every breath, every trembling hand, every kiss, every tear. I mean, your prose is so rich, it demands that we can't turn away, even when Mickey turns away from some hard truths. You know, I'm wondering what are some things that you had to force yourself not to turn away from as you were writing her stories? What is interesting, and I think that what my editor really pushed for was just more emotion into Mickey, in a sense. And not not that Mickey felt emotionless, but she didn't want me to run away from all the feelings that Mickey was feeling. She was like, well, how did she feel in this moment? What is her reaction? Be certain moments where like Mickey wouldn't react when I first wrote it. And she was like, how did she react to this? Like, how does she feel about this? What would she say? And choosing not to turn away from Mickey and instead the book essentially being all about her interiority and everything that she's going through and everything that she's feeling and all the things that she's experiencing... It was intense because we spend so much time, even though it's in the third person, it's like as close to close third, I think, as one can get. You're Um, in the room with her. Exactly. Like (laughs) she's crying. You're seeing the tears fall from her face. We are up underneath her the whole time. And so it was difficult at times not to turn away from her pain. It was very intense. Well, in the cut essay, it was interesting. Towards the end, I think you said you gave her a soft place to land and let her fall apart. Yeah. And I think the way that she fell apart, I mean, that is the story. It's the humanity. So I thought that was really interesting that we kind of got to see her move towards resolutions in some ways and then others make the same mistakes, but honesty was really pulsing throughout. And I think the vulnerability was a matter of separating your experiences from Mickey's and letting her kind of feel things. How is it kind of treading that boundary? I think it was understanding that you know, what I would do in a situation is not what Mickey would have done in a situation. (laughs) There's a lot of things of like, I would not make the same choices that she makes, but that's just her. That's just life. That's just real. I think that 
I'm sure there are going to be some readers who come to the page hoping that she's going to move one way and she moves the other. But I think that that's just reality. <laughs> I'm a big offender of reading my Goodreads reviews, both the good and the bad. And some of the criticism that I've seen that like has come up a few times is they're like, oh, like Mickey has these voices of reason and she doesn't listen to them. And her grandmother gives her such good advice. Like she could be making different choices and she just doesn't. That's so frustrating. And I'm like, yeah, but that's real. There's a lot of people who have great advice. I am the advice giver of my friend group. I cannot tell you how many times I've told them to go right and they go left. Ultimately, people have their own motivations. And my goal was to kind of make Mickey's motivations plain on the page. Growing is hard and it's not always in the most obvious ways or in the big moments. A lot of times it's in the small. And Mickey grows from the beginning of the book to the end, even if it's not in the most, like, you know, there's no like fanfare and she doesn't like, you know, run up a mountain and be like, yes, I am different. I am changed. Look at me. I am a different person now, you know? So it's like, I think my, I kind of hold to a different kind of standard in a sense which is what I essentially explore in the essay in some ways. But holding myself to a standard or this idea of having to be morally sound or perfect, all of those things I think are like things I didn't want to give to Mickey. I didn't want her to have that. It's kept me safe in a lot of ways, but it's also trapped me in others. And so I wanted her to be able to explore things unburdened by a certain level of self-awareness. Well, it's interesting to take on that challenge because Mickey's interiority is so strong and we really see her kind of pulling from the past, trying to make informed decisions about the present. Just going back to something you said about growth happening in the small moments, I was particularly moved by how you showed her anxiety and the physicality of your writing just overall, you know, early in the book as Mickey kind of building to this point where she's going to be fired from her job. We see her anxiety perk up in small but familiar ways, like her handshaking and just the little kind of nuances that you write for each of the characters. I mean, there are so many examples, but what were some interesting things about writing the body and the mind? I wanted it to feel very intertwined for her and to just have it be real. Like I just wanted to explore the way that these things show up in real life. I mean, her handshaking from anxiety is something I've actually experienced. Like I remember how anxious I used to be. Sometimes I would be at work, especially when I was younger and like just starting out and wanting to do everything right and wanting it to be perfect. And knowing that the mind can control the body in a lot of ways. And for me, it has to be physical. I just want to tell the truth. That's always my goal in my writing. Obviously I'm writing fiction, but I want to tell the truth. And so in truth telling, I'm trying not to shy away from the different aspects of things. And I realize a little bit too that, I don't know, like it's about overwriting. I don't know, like overwriting. I don't think I write like, I don't know how to say this. There's no excess. Yeah. Like I try not to overwrite. In my mind, I realize I like write a little bit of like a shorthand in a sense. If you've experienced it, it'll be very clear to you what I'm talking about. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I think you kind of hold up a mirror in moments that Mickey's experiencing. It feels like you're giving the reader credit. Yeah. Like there's a, I don't want to over explain anything. And so you said like there's like nuances and things feel specific. And I'm like, that's also because every character has their own specific things. And so for Mickey, it's like, this is just her experience and true to the way that she exists in the world in her life. And so I tried to also give her a level of specificity that's unmistakable and really feels like it belongs to her on the page. Yeah. I mean, it's no easy feat. Readers will have a lot to kind of parse through when they're getting to know Mickey and her experiences. But generally zooming out a little bit, talking about truth-telling, I wonder about the relationship between truth-telling and pace and maybe what fiction can teach us about those things that other forms can't. Yeah, I think that when it comes to pace especially, you have to make some decisions about what kind of story you're going to tell. The conversation around like growth and healing and all of that type of stuff, those things don't happen overnight. And so because I'm showing a very specific sliver of Mickey's life, it's like six weeks, only so much can happen. So the pace of that, I wanted to be true to that as far as like how far she comes in that time frame. You know, I think it'd be easy for her to like, I'm going to clean up my whole life and I'm going to do this thing. And here's step one, step two, step three, step four. I'm going to make all these drastic changes. And on the other side, I'm going to be this different person. I'm like, that can't happen in six weeks as much as we want it to, as much as we want things to completely change overnight. In so many cases, that is not how it happens. In this book, I wanted to really plant a seed, plant a seed of possibility for something more, something different, and just show the reality of like what it looks like to try to find yourself and put yourself back together. And in extending her world, I was like, the only way I can do that is by looking backward in some ways, because I'm like, I knew I wasn't going to play with the future. Let's look backwards and kind of fill in some of the ways that she 
moves in the world and shows up in the world by showing where she came from. I mean, I loved that it swiveled out beyond work and really got into her intimate relationships, her familial relationships. Was there any one area of her life that you wish you had expanded upon more? Maybe I would have loved to expand the love story even more. I was telling my friends recently, I'm like, oh, I just want to write a romance novel next because I love writing about love. That's my favorite thing to write about. And more of the friendship, I just, I don't know. I love Mickey's world. There's a lot of ways that I'm like, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, I could have written about this. I could have wrote about that. I could have added this in. I could have added that in. But I think it's fine as it is. But there's a lot of different directions that it could have went, I think. It's also like if I wrote in any other direction, it would have been a different book. I recognize as well. There could be a sequel. <laughs> People have been asking for two. Like, what's, what's Homebody's part two? Because I'm like, I could have continued to look at media and I'm like, I could have written a whole, I could have written three books about blackness in media and like just kept her in New York and had her fighting the good fight, you know, very like devil wears Prada in a sense. So she works, here are her things, here's the tumultuousness. She's like striving for the job. I could have done that. And I'm like, I have quick witty quips about the state of media and all of its bullshit for days could do that all day but I was like I really wanted to just explore the life of one black writer who really wants this really bad but you know it's like a person at the same time and is dealing with all this other stuff and you know allowed work to consume so much of her life that all that other stuff kind of got left behind and now she has to deal with it all that was really what I was committed to it's more about like this happens to be her job and this happens to be her circumstance versus this is the point I wasn't necessarily trying to make a point about that Absolutely. I think on that note, maybe we can have you read another section from Homebodies Mm -hmm. from chapter 18. Okay. The night after the park, tucked into her bed, Mickey began flirting with the idea of never going back to New York. It was a passing thought, sparked by the brush of T's hand and the full sound of her laugh. She had immediately dismissed it as foolish, but now, in this dark room, it evolved into fantasy. It was dizzying how easy it was to slot herself into a life she once sneered at the people she admired and pitied in the same breath, how small their lives had seemed, their hyper-local concerns and the cyclical nature of time. For so long, Mickey had seen them as stuck. She believed they had tricked themselves into thinking that stability was synonymous with success, but her world was simple here, populated by a revolving cast of people who had known her, people she could say, I love you too, and mean it. There was no politics or pretense, and she was free of the anxieties that had come from a world that she'd invented. New York hadn't done much but chew her up and spit her out, depositing her on her grandparents' doorstep, shaking and afraid. She was starting to feel more solid now, grounded, open. It was a freedom she'd never known, and it became difficult to remember why she'd stayed away so long and why she wanted to leave in the first place. Was she allowed to burn it all down? Could she wash it away clean? There was, however, the matter of Lex. Lex had not stopped texting her. There was a voicemail about their upcoming lease that sat unanswered. But Mickey had stopped responding regularly, their conversations taking on an unfamiliar rhythm. It had the predictability of free jazz, guided by Mickey's mood rather than her commitment. Maybe I just won't sign, Mickey thought, and her breath caught in her throat. For a moment, she felt light, like a weight had been lifted from her chest. It was terrifying to think of life on her own, but wasn't she doing that now, navigating this world without anyone by her side? The thought came again. I could choose to let Lex go. Waking up to her own capabilities was terrifying. Despite everything, she'd always felt like Lex was her sure thing, that in choosing Lex, she had done the best thing for herself. Life with Lex was a place she could call home without qualifications or apologies. But things had grown complicated, and Mickey had grown up too. Now choosing Lex didn't quite feel like choosing herself. Mickey was struck by the realization and tried to push it away, but it was out there now. It would never go away. In the midst of her epiphany, Mickey did the unthinkable. She picked up her phone and looked for a job. New York hadn't made her a writer. She had always been one and could do it from anywhere. The editorial landscape in D.C. was different. Her options were limited to outlets that did serious journalism, the kind that won Pulitzer's and made Mickey sweat with insecurity. It made waves seem trivial in comparison and her writing feel flimsy as a result. She considered speech or grant writing, a path her father had always encouraged as a steady, secure way to live out her dreams. Important people would always need help trying to figure out the right things to say. As she scrolled into the latter pages of the job site, she began convincing herself that she could make a life of this, occasionally freelancing on the side. She fell asleep with her computer in her lap, her resume edited and cover letter half-finished, wondering if this was how her life was meant to go, that maybe her journey was a circle and she was always meant to end up back home. How does it feel to be home with this book coming out and kind of revisiting some of these themes? Well, I'm only home for a week. (laughs) I'm just visiting. I'm still in New York. But it's interesting to come back here because it is actually my intention to move home. So that, I think, is a different thing in and of itself. My goal is to be back here. I think the pandemic changed for me what mattered in some ways. And so I'm originally from New York, 
lived there till I was 13. My dad has always lived here. My mom's always lived in New York. So it was always back and forth for me from when I was little. It would be long weekends, holidays, birthdays, Christmases, things like that were always in DC. So I feel like I grew up here just as much as I grew up in New York. And then we moved here when I was 13. My parents decided to get back together, which was a choice. It's amazing. Very short-lived, very short-lived, but they tried. And so that happened. I was here for like all of high school. Then I moved back to New York for college. And I've been in New York for the past 10 years since then. And so it's like, cool. It's like coming home. But again, as much as I love New York and I don't think I'll ever leave it really, it's always been my home. I just kind of, you know, one side of my grandparents is down here. My little sister, she's four years old, is down here. So I don't know. I'm like, I want to be here for her soccer games. <laughs> and I want to be able to eat dinner with my grandparents on a Sunday. And I want a house and not an apartment. So I'm like... I think my desires are just changing as I'm getting older. I mean, I think we all owe it to ourselves to not lock our own shot in a sense. Mm -hmm. I actually grew up here too, in Queens. We're in Queens. All over. Forest Hills, Rigo Park, Astoria. So I was like, oh, I'm happy to see Astoria here. (laughs) I'm in Woodside now. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been back in a while. My parents don't live here anymore. So kind of lost the tether to that part of my life, but... New York's an interesting one. Lately for me, it's been feeling less like home and just more familiar. Mm -hmm. And I don't Mm -hmm. always know if those things are the same. I've also been going through something where I really retreated in the last year. And I'm not sure if it has something to do with writing a book and just needing to kind of isolate. But yeah, it's interesting to kind of build a smaller life in a city that's always demanding more of you. I feel like I went through something very similar when I was writing where my world became very small and I just got very obsessed with my own routine. People did not see me often. I feel like I still live a small life in New York in a lot of ways. Even though I like go to events for work and I like hang out with friends, I'm not out all the time. I am home a lot in my little space a lot with my family a lot. And I love that. It's nice. (laughs) I just enjoy it. But yeah, New York in some ways does make that challenging, if only because everyone else is living what seems to be the busiest, most full life ever alongside you simultaneously. And so it is very different. And I think I love the flexibility of being able to say like, oh, I want to go to like some crazy restaurant today. I want to go to this beautiful museum tomorrow. And I think that when you're in a smaller town or somewhere that's a little bit less fast paced, it's sometimes more difficult to do that. But there's something nice about the quiet too. It's essential for me. I'm super introverted. So it's kind of funny that I've been here for as long as I have. But opposites attract, right? For sure. I think just on the note of living in New York and the quote unquote expectations of making the most of it here, something that you also explore in Homebodies is the role of social media in some ways and the performative elements of just being young and trying to stake your claim. And I'm curious what you've learned about boundaries When it comes to boundaries online, I feel like I've always had a very clear sense of what I was going to do on the internet and what I wasn't going to do on the internet because I had a teacher in high school who scared all of us about the kinds of things that we should be doing. They're like, colleges are looking at this, like, you know, you guys drink in your hand, that's inappropriate. This in your hand, that's inappropriate, that kind of thing. And so as a result, I've kind of continued to adhere to a lot of those standards since. Like, there are no photos of me, like, with my middle finger up. I was like, what if I ever wanted to be president? Like, they would be like, oh, this girl has her middle finger up. Absolutely canceled. (laughs) Um, So, like, there's all of these, there's, like, all these, like, random things that I was like, I'm not going to do. I just think also social media is not my place to go and be vulnerable. Some people feel comfortable doing that. But to me, true vulnerability is dangerous in the hands of strangers. I think that that's something I reserve for people who love me. And these people on the internet don't love me. Even if they think they do, it's like a projection of myself. And it's not that it's inauthentic. I don't curate things like, oh, I want people to see me a certain kind of way. It's like not intentional in that way, but it is a curation. I don't necessarily post when I'm having a bad day on the internet. I don't find that to be helpful for me personally. Like, I just don't find it to be a helpful exercise. So my emotional space is very, very far away from the internet. I mean, that's rare in a culture of reactivity. Yeah, like people are crying on the internet and I'm like, I love that for y'all, but I just can't. Save it for the page and for the people. I mean, I think to your point of reserving honest, special parts of yourself is really apparent in the book. And this is kind of something I've picked up over the years before I start a book, like to read the acknowledgements first. Mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of talk about some of the people and your acknowledgements, you know, who there has kind of encouraged you to, like Mickey, move on 
someone from situations or ideals that were no longer serving you or who's just made you better? Everyone. A lot of the people who are named are my friends and they are my family in a lot of ways too. And they've all done that. I think that what's great about them is I can bring the worst thing that I feel or my scariest, biggest feeling. And their response is not to run away from that, but to support me and love me through it. You know, remind me of who I am on days when I don't recognize myself or on days when I don't see myself in the way that they see me. You know, I couldn't have finished this in some ways without them because they're just like, you got this. Even when I was like, I need to finish this. I need to work on this. They're like, okay, we're not calling you for two weeks. <laughs> they're like, we're leaving you alone. We're not going to call you. And when I would call them, they would still answer the phone and talk to me even when I'm supposed to be editing. They've just been my people. And there's people who aren't on that acknowledgement page who are also my people. And they're my community. Every single one of them have really shaped me and made me who I am. And so it was like, I couldn't have my first book come out and not say thank you to them. What do you think they learned about you through this book that they didn't know before? A few of my friends said that they didn't know I was funny. <laughs> <laughs> and But one of my friends, Madison in particular, she was like, I didn't know you were like funny in your writing. A lot of people have said that to me too. That Home Bitties is kind of like a funny book too. There's moments that made them laugh. And I'm like, that's so interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, the dialogue is so rich. And I think for as much humor as there is, there's also a lot of depth and a lot of reckoning within Mickey's relationships. And... I just want to quickly touch on the mother-daughter aspects mm -hmm. of the story because we see a lot of things at play. You know, we see the strain between Mickey and her own mother, the unspoken tensions between Lex and Elda. And we also see Mickey's longtime friend, Jasmine, as she mothers her daughter, Nova. And then there's mm -hmm. Grandma Anna, who is amazing and a matriarch in the family. You know, there are moments when motherhood is weaponized. And when Mickey realizes that, quote, they had spent much of their relationship mothering each other, filling the holes that the women who birthed them had left behind. And yeah, I'd love to hear how you came to each person's relationship and what all of these characters and dynamics taught you about caring for somebody. Yeah. So for me, I knew that I was always going to write a book about lesbian women. That was always going to be important to me because as a lesbian woman, I was like, I want to write about what I know about. And that's what I know about. But on a more ideological level, I think what's really compelling to me about women loving women is there's this idea of nurturing that is always kind of tossed about as like this one of these essential qualities of being a woman, which I think is not true, but it's a sociological truth in some ways, nonetheless. Like it's something that's always like put forth as this way that women just naturally are, which we know is not the case. But at the same time, if we're looking at women as spaces of healing, I wanted to explore the richness of all of the interactions that we have and all of the different textures that come with that. And so as much as they're caring for each other, they're hurting each other too. And I really wanted to explore the various ways in which those dynamics exist. Like Jasmine, her and Mickey have this very lighthearted relationship in a sense. Her and Mickey obviously have some tension. They're like each other's oldest friends. They're not each other's closest friends in the same way as like Scotty, who she clearly feels to be like on more level ground with in some ways. So there's tension there, but I think that there's almost like a softness that Jasmine has with Mickey that she doesn't really have with her own daughter. Like even though she clearly loves Nova, she's constantly like disciplining her and their interactions are mostly her telling her not to do something. And for me, I've seen that kind of motherhood where like, I'm like, oh, this is my girl. Like we hang out, she's so fun. And her kids do experience her as fun, but there's always this discipline element that's happening. So I wanted to explore that. And then I also, when it came to Elda, it's like this overbearing mom who wants all these things for her kids, loves her daughter, wants to give her everything, wants to support her in all of these ways, except for one. And so they have this positive relationship, but Lex knows in order for that relationship to be maintained, there's parts of herself that she has to kind of leave behind and hide. And there's that tension and being the person outside of that, that causes a lot of anxiety. As far as Mickey's relationship with her own mother, I was really interested in how her mother mothers her from far away and her mother's choice to leave because of the failures of her own mother, in a sense. And so that lineage of trauma was really interesting to me. When you asked me earlier, how many other directions, <laughs> is there anything else you would have wanted to write more about? I'm like, I could have explored that further. And I'm like, and then we have the love songs of W.E. Du Bois, where the book is 800 pages right. long. <laughs> And that is like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books ever because it's just so, so good. But I was like, am I going to write a family epic? Maybe the next book. I was like, maybe the next one. Let's stick to Mickey six weeks because the relationship between women and their daughters, and especially Black women and their daughters, is so, in as many ways as it is tender and nourishing, it's also heartbreaking and fraught and tense. And so I wanted to kind of, through different relationships, 
pull at some of those threads and just kind of see what came out. And it's not always, Mickey had a tense relationship with her mom. Here's why. It's just like in everybody's interactions. Jasmine being this young mom who's also disciplinarian is not necessarily always overtly said, but it's in the Nova, don't open that door. Nova, what are you doing? Nova, don't open your presence. I don't care how you feel. It's in the way she talks to her and the way that she interacts with her and the way that she kind of responds to her. Those are the things I wanted to kind of show, expose the dynamic via dialogue a lot of times. Yeah, it was hard to see Mickey kind of learn the difference between love and care and control and manipulation, particularly Mm -hmm. with tea. I think the relationships you draw, there's never really any sort of prescription about how it's supposed to look. I mean, because it's like, in some ways, I know everybody, like in all the relationships, I I see parts of those relationships in a lot of relationships that I know or am a part of in real life. (laughs) The girl, the people in the acknowledgments, I'm like, when y'all read it, be like, "Mm, that's interesting. I'm like, yeah, y'all probably gave me a little idea or two. But yeah, like all- Art imitating life. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, and I guess it feels real because it is real and not like real, like, oh, it's my life, but real, like, it's the world that I see around me. And I try to be faithful to that how do you think about legacy what do you want yours to be I think about legacy a lot and not really in relation to myself but more so in relation to writers I really admire like when we think about Toni Morrison we think about how she's completely reimagined the way that we conceptualize slavery in literature and the trauma of slavery in literature we think about someone like Zora Hurston and how she's completely transformed the way that we understand dialogue and dialect essentially in literature and the possibilities for that and respectability. She's done so much for that. And then we think about, like for me, the legacy of lesbianism in Black literature and how that's often not explored in some senses or is and like isn't called that. I think about Alice Walker and I think about The Color Purple and the legacy of that work and Blackness and trauma and just like how a lot of these books that I loved and grew up on are like a lot of the books that shaped me, how they've informed my own work and that it'll kind of give people hopefully new ways of seeing themselves or new ways of understanding the world around them. And so, yeah, for me, I'm like, I just hope that people feel seen and that people feel connected and people feel understood and they feel like I told the truth. That's my hope. It's ongoing work. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that requires asking questions asking questions to your community, asking questions of yourself. You know, I'm curious if there's a question that you hope people start asking you more often. I think I want people to ask, how do I see myself? I think that that's always a fun question. I'm in my head a lot. So I like questions that kind of pull me out of that at times and like force me to consider myself in a different way. It's a good check-in for myself because I think the answer changes throughout your life. How do you see yourself at this moment? I see myself as someone who is trying and for the first time, doing so in like a very vulnerable way. This whole process has been very vulnerable for me. Even that article is vulnerable for me and like leading with my heart and my emotion and leading with my perspective and my experiences. It's teaching me that there's not only something valuable in it for me, but it's valuable and healing for other people too. And I had one person reach out to me recently about homebodies and she was like, this really made me feel seen. And I've gotten that message a few times. The idea that something I literally <laughs> like came out of my head and just have been typing away on a computer about has helped people to see themselves more clearly. They feel like I see myself in the page. Those have always been very transformative moments in literature for me. So the idea that I'm doing that for other people is very surreal. I also see myself as someone who is learning a lot. I think I'm learning a lot about how to be a writer and how to do this and like create a practice and do this often and continue to try to like what comes after homebodies, you know, that whole thing that's in some ways scary and (laughs) exciting but daunting in some other ways because you start at page one all over again so that's crazy but I feel like I know myself better than I ever have but I'm also excited about the parts of myself that I haven't explored yet so yeah I would agree with that I feel like I'm someone who's re-emerging I did turn away from a lot of things and I think part of that was a delayed grief from Mm -hmm. the pandemic Mm -hmm. and just from the wildness of the last years but I think it's kind of a constant negotiation of what matters and how I want to show up because I have to show up (laughs) for sure and in a lot of ways I feel like that's what Mickey is doing is like re-emerging it's an evolution from the self that she'd become as a result of everything that had happened to her and it's like now time for her to start making some choices I think there's going to be some people who wished I focused on the choices that she made but I think there's something very valuable about the journey to get there yeah I mean there's so much more that we could talk about in terms of people writing reading But I think to close things out, maybe we can have you read one final passage from Homebodies. 
something funny about what you had me read was that was the original ending of Homebodies. Was that an editor's choice? Yeah, it was my editor's choice and my agent's choice. So like, you can't leave it here. And I was like, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> this like fade to black vibe is still the way that it ends actually, but this is the way that I initially intended it to end. I wanted her to be like considering in a different place. Like I, I wanted to write a quiet book. Like I knew it wasn't going to be like pacey and exciting. I'm like, I'll leave that for later. But yeah, I don't know. I just wanted it to be quiet. So I'm going to read it. When Mickey was done, she felt that old rage bubbling inside her, a faithful friend, but something else met her there too, a certainty that she had done the right thing. She ventured to look at Scotty in the eyes, and she swore they were a little misty. Fuck, Scotty said. Yeah, Mickey replied. Mickey stood on the street until Scotty's car turned the corner and she became a dot in a sea of traffic headed to the city. She meant to turn around and go back to her apartment, but her legs carried her to a nearby park instead. It was teeming with people intoxicated with the warmth of a perfect summer day, 83 degrees and sunny with the hint of a breeze. A group of teenage boys were messing around on skateboards, kick-flipping and failing, the sharp thwacks hitting the concrete like a drum. Kids ran from their parents, steps ahead of their strollers and scooters, their bodies tearing through the air like they were fighting gravity. Groups of 20-somethings languished on blankets and sheets, sipping wine, smoking weed, playing music loud. Families gathered. Then there were the couples, leaning close, holding hands, closer than the heat should allow. Mickey remembered when she had that, when the world watched her, and she didn't care who saw. She found a nearby half-shaded bench and sat down. She knew she should have been back at her apartment prepping, but the sun felt too good on her skin. She wondered what people thought when they saw her now, how they would see her on their television sets. Black girl, long braids, thick thighs, alone. Would they think her dress was frumpy or oversized and cool? Would they want to be her friend? Would they get that she was a writer, a real one? Someone who got paid to whip up snappy paragraphs and go to events? Would they think she was just okay at her job? Would she be believed? Could they tell she liked women? All women, but especially the ones who dressed like boys but were all the soft things underneath. Do they know she'd gone viral? Changed her little bit of the world? Did they know, though Mickey was sure they possibly couldn't tell, that she was terrified of loving the people who loved her for real? That she feared one day everyone would appear from behind some thick heavy curtain and say, gotcha, all at once. That she had done all this loving for free, and they'd all just been pretending to love her back. Did they think she was a fraud? Or, and this scared her the most, would they perceive her at all? Or was she just another face in the crowd? For now, at least, she was just another black girl on a park bench, soaking up the nice weather, looking for love or perhaps filled with it, faded to fade into the background, forgotten when the sun went down. That was my conversation with Tembi Dentonhurst, author of Homebodies. You can purchase Homebodies anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Tembe on social, at Tembe. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.